Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Mercatus Podcast, Digital Grocer. I'm your host, Sylvain Perrier, President and CEO of Mercatus Technologies. And joining me remotely today from his home is Mark Fairhurst, our Senior Director of Marketing. Thanks for joining me, Mark. You're welcome. Oh, <laughs> you know, Mark and I are doing... You promoted do me. Did I? Oh, yeah, I did. You're Vice President now. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Ladies and gentlemen, joining us from his home is Mark Ferris, our VP of Marketing. Thank you for joining me, Mark. It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. <laughs> we're all safe and we're all healthy. We are, and we're doing our part not to, I wouldn't call it social distancing, I'd call it physical distancing. Yes. And so I happen to be in the office today, and I will say, it's actually, surprisingly enough, it's a beautiful day in Toronto, even though we're under lockdown. Gorgeous weather outside. Yeah, it's a strange time because it's not only our city that's under lockdown, it's our province. And as well now, I think Mark, you and I have talked about this, is the interprovincial connections between Quebec and Ontario are actually closed yeah. now. Yeah, unprecedented what's yeah. happening. Yeah, and I would suspect that at some point our prime minister, uh, we don't have a president, we have a prime minister, will likely be invoking what today is called the uh, Emergency Act. For those of you that are a little bit older that would have been around in the 70s in, in the Montreal area or just in the province of Quebec would remember the War uh, Measures Act, which was actually put in place by Justin Trudeau's father, Pierre Elliott Trudeau. But you know what? Nonetheless, positive thoughts, and we send tons of prayers to the frontline emergency medical workers not just in the city, but all over the world that are just trying to make a difference in people's lives. Yeah, it's critical. It's Absolutely. super critical. And I think, didn't we just pass last night a million cases on the planet? Globally, yeah. Globally, yeah. yeah, it's just crazy. So let's go back in time. And when I say back in time, I'm not talking about 20 years. I'm talking about a few weeks ago. Feels <laughs> <laughs> like years. Yeah, where's my DeLorean when I need it? To March 11th, I was actually driving through the Dakotas. I had I, mean, I was coming back from a client visit and I just elected at the very last minute not to fly. And we had kind of implemented a, a no-fly policy at office anyways. And, you know, I really don't mind doing lengthy drives. And, you know, I was tired. I think I had made it as far close to Madison, Wisconsin at the time. And I'm like, ah, you know what? I'm just going to pull over for the night. And it's close to nine o'clock. President Trump was doing an address to the nation. And that's when, you know, just listening to him talk, that's when it really hit me that what we thought was normal. And Mark, you and I got a sense of this when we were at MGA in San Diego, that this was going to become an issue. Yeah. And, you know, President Trump made the bold decision to close the border, not allowing European flights or people from outside the country from, from coming yeah. in. Americans were allowed to come home. And then soon after, we, we ended up closing a joint decision between Canada and the U.S. to actually close the yeah. longest undefended border on the planet. Yeah, I think that was just a few days after you got back. Yeah, it was. It was, actually was, yeah. And it was a bit harrowing when I was trying to cross at Windsor because they weren't sure if they were going to close the border. Was I going to get stuck and all those things? But that's when you kind of got a sense that things were going to change. Now, from that moment, so around 9 o'clock that night, Spilling into Thursday, Friday, and certainly over the weekend, the amount of traffic that we saw on our dot-coms skyrocketed and sales actually shot up 1,200%. We saw a mobile application download increase of 
300%. Even yesterday I was checking in. We have some apps that were north of 1,500% in terms of downloads. You know, we saw sales go through the roof for all product categories. And, you know, the one thing that we did notice, and this is also coming from conversations with existing clients and prospective clients, and quite frankly, retailers that we don't even work with, but we have tremendous research relationships with, is the lack of available gig workers. Yeah. You know, for marketplace solutions, for order picking, order delivering. And this is happening at the same time. I think it was it Sunday? I think it was last Sunday where some of the uh, gig workers for Instacart decided to threaten for a strike. You know, they're not necessarily getting the support that they need. And, you know, maybe that's right. Maybe that's wrong. I don't know. I'm just just reporting what I'm seeing in the trades. But it made me really think through, if you look at this situation we're in, is there a way to solve this problem? Mm -hmm. And the problem is lack of available resources. You know, retailers are hiring like crazy. Amazon's trying to hire Kroger's trying to hire. All all of our retailers on the West Coast are trying to hire. And we know, we talk about this quite frequently, is the most expensive component to any e-commerce solution, quite frankly, is going to always be labor. And there is a balancing act between platforms, technology, performance, and order volume, and the people that you use to do the picking and packing of your solution to get a positive ROI. And it is achievable. We've seen it. But there becomes this interesting tipping point when you get a certain number of transactions per location or chain-wide, quite frankly. And, you know, you'll hear the pundits in the industry say then becomes an operational challenge. Do you need to put in a better picking solution that does wave picking, zone picking? Absolutely. That's important. Is there a way that you can organize certain stores to be able to facilitate the order and the picking while still supporting the general public. Absolutely, those things can be done. Pre-pandemic, one of the key words was being spoken in the trades as well as at various trade shows. And I think the last industry trade show, quite frankly, that may have had any impact would have been NGA, but that key word was MFCs, micro-fulfillment centers. And you kind of go out there and you start to look at this technology and it's quite formidable and it can do some amazing things. So to help us understand MFCs, we brought in the Cube Storage Pioneers, AutoStore, great company. And joining us on the phone from the US, I'm going to mispronounce his last name again. His name is Andrew Bessinger. Bessinger, I apologize for that. He's the business development manager at AutoStore. Andrew, welcome to our podcast. And I'm going to ask you to repronounce your last name. I really apologize. No problem. It's Andrew Benzinger, but thank you for having me. I certainly appreciate the opportunity to connect today. So, Andrew, can you explain to our audience the idea of an MFC? So, a micro-fulfillment center, or MFC, as a lot of the industry is calling it, is really a, a couple different things. The overarching principle is around how do I operate in a smaller facility than a traditional DC? And, you know, where the facility can be, whether it's in a grocery store in the center, in the back of a grocery store or in a dark store is kind of up for debate based on volume and based on configurations that are needed for the particular application. But the concept is 
you know, the driving force is customers that are shopping in grocery stores online or in person are trying to get closer to their grocery store. And the grocery store is trying to solve the demand requests or asks a couple of different ways. And being able to do that in a one, two, or three hour time frame is really tough without automation. And that is where the micro fulfillment center came to be. How do we put automation? How do we put you know, those demands that the customers are asking for closer to the customer and closer to the grocer as opposed to a, you know, whether it's established or not, but it's a, you know, two, 300,000 square foot facility where they're doing store replenishment. Now, you just can't serve the customers from those kind of large facilities. So how do we get closer to the customer? And that's where the MSC was really born. Wow. Now, AutoStore is not a new company. I went to your website. I think you guys were founded in mid-90s. You guys are kind of like the pioneers in this space. Can you share a little bit of the history of the corporation? Sure. And you're right. We are the cube storage pioneers. There's been uh, a couple of companies that have tried to mimic what we've done, and that's a testament to our success that we have other people trying to do what we're doing and having it look a lot like ours in a number of different ways is certainly a testament that we're doing the right stuff. You know, we've been around for over 22 years, and we were originally a, a semiconductor distributorship and had a storage issue like a lot of our clients do initially, and we're running out of space to support the growth for all the inventory that was coming in, and essentially we built AutoStore as you see it today, and over time used it, perfected it, and you know what I think is really interesting part of the story is that neighbors of ours in Norway came and saw the solution five years after it was born and said, oh, that's really cool. I would solve a problem of ours. Can we get one of those too? <laughs> and we're like, sure, why not? So we'll build you one. And two years later, someone else came and saw our facility and did the same thing. And we thought, huh, maybe we have a business here. And you know, I think one of the reasons I tell that story is it's a little bit unique. I, mean, I think it's a little bit un-American that you know we were solving our own problem as opposed to trying to you know be a startup company and raise a lot of capital and you know really conquer the world as soon as possible which you know I, I like because it says not only does our solution work but it is reliable enough that it solves our own problem and i think that's a a testament as well as a characteristic that you'll see across all the different aspects of how we service our auto stores as well as built it and the, the guts and the robots themselves. So when's the right time for a retailer to consider such a solution? There's a lot of different metrics. You know, I think there's a couple different ways you can look at it. Financially, it's easy to start getting density when it comes to 20 to $30 million in sales at a store level or at a geographic cluster. So that's a metric. Another metric could be, you know, 200, 300, 400 orders per store per week. But that really depends on how much of the volume is coming from store pickup versus how much of the volume is going to come through delivery. And most companies in the U.S. have a much stronger pickup than they do delivery. So that's an easy place to start. We're also seeing companies, when they get to that two, three, four hundred orders per week range, Either they're doing it themselves, and that's when they start to feel the stress of scaling, and you know whether they are having a hard time finding their own employees, or you know you get to that kind of order volume per week, you start seeing 
you know, where do we stock these orders? How fast can we turn these around? Where do we get extra employees? Because a lot of the grocery employees that we're seeing in the industry, at least in the U.S., there's a lot of high school and college age workers. And a lot of them don't have the physical muscle it takes to move a, you know, 20, 30, 40 pound tote of groceries. Mm -hmm. And their mentality is, yes, I can be a bagger. Yes, I can be a checkout clerk. But it's a little bit different when you're pushing heavy, heavy, bulky product, whether they're partially completed orders or fully completed orders. So that's a driver. On the other side of the equation, you look at, you know, some of the shipped and the Instacart shoppers of the world. And we're finding a couple of customers of ours have come to us saying, you know, we have a lot of congestion in our aisles. And there's a lot of people that want to shop in grocery stores today. And we want to make sure that we're not degrading the customer experience for those that still want to come. And, you know, as as much attention as this e-commerce grocery conversation is getting, you know, while it's growing exponentially, especially right now, the lion's share of the sales volume is still from in-store shopping. That's right. So, you know, it gets often overlooked and it is obvious, but at the same time, it has to be repeated and brought up because it's a challenge and you know how do we solve for that and one of the ways that we do is by with an mfc is being able to remove most if not all of those pickers out of the store entirely allowing those customers that do want to shop without green shirts in the store to have a really positive experience i mean think about a number of regional grocers or even, you know, Whole Foods 10 years ago, they had beer taps and, you know, glasses of wine walking around the store. Pretty hard to do when you're bumping into, you know, third-party shopping groups or even your own shoppers, you know, clogging up the aisles. It's, it's a long way from that elevated experience that a lot of people are trying to accomplish. Yeah, no, absolutely. And what's what's the average size? Is this 10,000 square feet, 15,000 square feet? It really depends on how much you're trying to solve for. So if you're trying to solve for 4,000, 5,000 orders a week, yes, 10,000 or less is certainly no problem. You know, if you're trying to solve for 10, 12,000 orders a week in a particular cluster, I don't think anyone in the industry can do it in 10,000 square feet. It's just too much volume. So that to me looks a little bit closer to 14, 15, 16,000 square feet. Mm -hmm. A lot of it depends on, you know, how much space you have for for routing and consolidation and, you know, loading the trucks or loading the, the gig workers car, mm-hmm. you know, there's, the automation is a, a significant portion of the total square footage of the MFC, but it's not the entire piece. So, right. you know, when I say those numbers, you know, generally the automation or the auto store is going to be about half to a little bit less than half around 45, 40% of the square footage because you need you know, space for receiving pallets of product. You need space for you know, orders that are fully picked and ready to be loaded on the truck or the car, you know, those types of things. It's not just the automation. But one of the nice parts about AutoStore is that because of our density and being the Cube Store's pioneers, we're able to have more product in and more automation in a smaller footprint Mm -hmm. and that opens up an unbelievable range of scenarios whether it's you know i can be in a smaller space or i can offer more product and just about everyone i've ever talked to agrees that if you offer more product you end up having larger baskets with your customers 
So the difference between offering 10, 20, or even 25,000 SKUs is a lot better with larger baskets for the grocers than offering a 10,000 SKUs. Auto store allows you to do that. And so when you look at a facility, let's say 15,000 square feet, maybe 40% of it is the automation. And if you just hone in on that automation piece, how long does it take to set that up? Is it eight months, nine months, 10 months? You know, generally from purchase order to turnover and to make the systems fully up and running, you know, we say usually six months. It can be faster than that. It can be slower than that, depending on how big the system is. But we feel pretty comfortable saying that it's going to be, you know, six months or less. In almost all the cases, especially when you start getting into these smaller systems that are, you know, four and 5,000 square feet of automation, we can really do less than six months. No problem. That's amazing. Now, when you think of performance, we're seeing in our own statistics for a really mature, seasoned personal shopper who knows her store exceptionally well, typically 32 to 60 seconds to pick a product. I say it's higher than 32 seconds easily because, you know, the time to get to it and so on. I've read numbers that it can, for automated solutions, can be sub 20 seconds. What kind of performance are you guys getting? I think it just depends. There's a number of different ways we can format it. But I would say, you know, pretty conservatively that you can do six seconds to complete the pick. And, you know, that's going to depend whether you're grabbing, you know, three or four boxes of Cheerios because your kids just go nuts on Cheerios or, you know, you're picking one of each. But at a high level, I'd say, you know, six seconds is really comfortable for us. And, you know, one of the big drivers around speed that I like to tell is, you know, beyond picking. You know, you've got, you know, receiving, decanting and slotting. Yeah picking the automated product, picking the manual product, consolidation of the orders. And then you've got the packing and the staging and finally loading vehicles. You know, picking out of the automated is one part of the conversation. Right. You know, if you get back to supply chain and, you know, looking at other warehouses and, and, you know, consulting and all those types of things, you start looking at value stream mapping and what are the cycle times, you know, getting back to, you know, your first operations class probably in high school or even college for that matter. You know, as much as I love talking about how fast the auto store is, it is one piece of the process. Right. It is never the bottleneck. And I think that's a piece that not enough grocers have fully learned yet. You know, the difference between going 400, 500, 600, or 700 units per hour per picker is almost irrelevant because the absolute bottleneck in the process is always going to be the consolidation. So understanding that, you know, yes, we can achieve 500, 600, 650, you know, units or even lines per hour, but we're finding a lot more companies that are interested in saying, you know, I'll sacrifice a little bit of speed so that I have less people touching the product. So as an example, when you're restocking a grocery store, traditionally, you could have easily a dozen, two dozen people doing the restocking. So how accurate is that quantity? We're not entirely sure. In an MFC, you could have eight to 12 people touch that product, whether it's been received, mm-hmm. restocked, decanted, picked. Even within picking, you could have five or six different people touch it, whether it's 
you know, is the tote that we're picking to, is that, you know, ready to go? Is it prepped properly? Is it picked to, is it consolidated? All that kind of stuff. Because you've got picking out of the automation in a chill environment and an ambient environment, but then you have picking in a manual environment, product that's not in, in the automation and the chill as well as the ambient, as well as the frozen. So you've got potentially five different people touching it. Now we're finding that quality accurate orders and customer experience is becoming a big driver for people that actually have done this before. There's a lot of people that are just getting their foot wet. But for those that are not, they're saying, we'll sacrifice a little bit of speed so that we can have a better customer experience. And as interesting as that conversation is, it's happening a lot more. So it builds on my point that as fast as picking is and as interesting as it is, what's the goal here? The goal is to get your product, which is your groceries, to your customers complete and as fast as possible. The goal is not how fast can you pick. Right. And that's a huge disconnect. You know, we're, we're rooted in supply chain. We've been doing this for 22 years. We've got 450 installations globally. So we've been doing this a long time. We know what it takes to have a successful, you know, implementation and a successful experience so that customers are ordering a second system and a second site or in another country and those types of things. We've done all this before. And, and what I think is really cool is we're not actually changing a lot. So our robots are the same robots, whether you're an e-commerce company or a grocery company. We're not making massive modifications. So we can take all of those 22 years of experience with us and bring it into the grocery, which there are nuances to grocery and we know them and we've certainly learned them. But, you know, we're not a two-year-old startup company that is, you know, trying to put our first, second or third site out there. So there's a an expertise from an integration perspective and an entire, how do I run a best-in-class micro-fulfillment center for groceries? Because we're trying to get these orders out complete and as fast as possible. So when you think in the terms of an ROI, is this something, again, there's so many variables to an ROI, but if you take an average installation, and I wouldn't know what average is, and maybe that actually doesn't exist, is this an 18-month, 24-month? What, what does that look like? You know, in the projects that we've done so far, we're really seeing right around that two-year mark. So call it 24 to 27, 28 months. Almost everything in the grocery side is less than three years that we've seen so far. But at the same time, there's a whole host of factors you've got to look at. You know, what's the benefit of the logistics costs that you have from, which is a huge cost driver, major cost driver in that final mile. Yeah. Um, are you driving the product from a hub and spoke model? Because there's a logistics cost to, to delivering to the store a couple times a day. You know, are you going to support five stores? Are they, are they five or 10 miles away? Or are they 30 miles away? You know, all these different things drive into that. It's the same way that, you know, labor costs drive. So in a warehouse, you typically see 12 to $18, you know, headcount costs, not even fully loaded with, with benefits, et cetera. And typically in the grocery stores, you see a lot less than that. Sometimes it's $8 an hour, you know, rearing in, in the teens as well. So net of all of that, you know, we're seeing that just over two-year mark when it comes to an ROI. But having said that, the growth that we're seeing, especially right now with the whole virus issue, is crazy. 
I mean, the volumes are through the roof and, you know, we're seeing a few grocery companies as early as last year plan for three, five and 10% growth. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they hit that in the first day of March, which is pretty crazy. So I think, you know, we're also really well positioned from a flexibility perspective that as you grow, we can grow with you. Right. And that's a huge proponent that you need to have because I don't think anyone really knows how big this market's going to be. Right. I think everyone knows it's going to be really big. Mm-hmm. And we don't know how fast we're going to get to that big market. Yeah, I, yeah I would those agree. Those are two, you know, how fast and how big are great questions. And I think no one will argue that it's moving in the right positive direction. Yeah, I and, would agree. And, you know, Auto Store can really scale with you. It is not a one or two year growth plan for an expansion. We can very easily expand in a number of single digit weeks, whether it's more storage mm-hmm. to offer more SKUs and more days of inventory on hand or more speed. And speed can be more robots for the actual picking or speed can be adding a second station or a third station mm-hmm. or you know more orders out for that same hour. So you know we're the most flexible solution out there and I think it's, especially the times right now, flexibility is huge. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, so hypothetically speaking, so if you were coming to Toronto to set up a system and, you know, obviously there's support and maintenance is a component of this. Do you train someone local or do you come in and implement labor in that market to support the retailer? Yeah. So we train them. So we found that there's not enough money to go around. There's not enough margin in this industry to pay six or seven different mouths. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just not there. So we train the grocery themselves how to operate it, how to run it, and how to maintain it. So we say that and a supervisor, or I like to call them robot doctors, mm-hmm. um, they can manage well over 100 robots. And in these MFCs that we're seeing, you know, the quantity of robots in that system is always less. And let's just use a nice round number of 50. So what I'm saying is, from a maintenance perspective, one person can, in half or a third of their job can manage the whole system. Now, other technologies aren't nearly as reliable as we are. It's not our reliability numbers. Our uptime is 99.7%. No one's even close to that. So that allows us to, to not have full-time staff 24-7 on-site with an auto store logo badge, wow. making sure this thing actually works. Because we've been doing this for 22 years, we know it works. Mm-hmm. Our customers know that it works. So you know, there's preventative maintenance you know, you know, that you have to do, just like owning a car. you got to make sure it, you know, if you want it to run for a decade or even two decades like our auto stores do, you got to take care of it. But taking care of it is not a full-time job. It is a part-time job. And from a technical perspective, it takes very, very little. So I, I say in the in the warehouse space, if you have someone who can repair a conveyor, just about every warehouse does, they're overqualified after our three-day training to do all the maintenance that they have to do for an auto store. Oh, that's amazing. Somewhere between funny and comical and awesome, but it's a testament to the Norwegian way of thinking. Yeah. And and that's how we're rooted, the simplicity and its redundancy. And how do we make sure this works? And it gets back to my first point. We wanted this to work for ourselves. That's a huge reason of why it's so simple. We're not just trying to sell this stuff. 
we know that it works for us and that's why it is so reliable and you know if it was anything less than you know our 99.7 percent you know uptime metric you know we, we would continually um you know have to improve that because if it's not good enough for us it's not good enough for anybody else well said and andrew it's been a pleasure having you on the show i am completely blown away by the story and what you guys are doing how can people get a hold of you sure our website is auto store we've got a website in about eight different languages and we operate in over 30 countries so i think they can get a hold of us that way and i'll, I'll provide my email address and phone number as well perfect mark are you still safe I'm still safe. I'm still rooted in the basement. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate but that. That. that was that was great. Thanks, Andrew. Wonderful. Thank you for having me. I certainly appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we can get back to uh, a new normal as soon as possible. I'm ready to Thanks. travel again. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. And Mark, how do people get a hold of us? Website, www.mercatus.com. All the contact points are there. Mm-hmm. And then also on the podcast page, direct links to you, me, and uh, we'll post Andrew's email as well. Perfect. It's great. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to our podcast. And don't forget to keep your ear to the ground for our next episode, which I'm sure it will soon uh, be made available to you guys. Peace. Peace.